to the preaching and teaching ministry of Marion Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. There's a teacher talking to her class, and they were studying synonyms and antonyms. If you don't know what that is, you can look it up. But the teacher asked, what is the opposite of lost? And the boy answered, saved. And the teacher said, no, that's not right. The opposite of lost is found. And the boy said, well, when you get saved, you've been found. I actually had that down to introduce my sermon the other day. And then on Friday afternoon, my daughter and I went on a bike ride out in the Greenway. And we got back to the parking lot at the end of our ride, and there's police cars everywhere. And my car was way down the hill, and I didn't know if they are going to let people through. And I went up, and I said, "Is my car's down there. Can we go to it, or can I go down there real quick and bring it back? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, you can go to it. There's nothing dangerous going on, but there's a young lady that is lost. At least we think she's lost. And we started talking to them, and, and, and come to find out it was a 19-year-old young lady that had left her parents at that particular trailhead to go, and she was supposed to be back four and a half, five hours before and did not show up. They called the police, or a helicopter, was a helicopter circling overhead. The police were there, and um, I said, well, was she a biker or a hiker? I said, oh, she's a hiker. I said, oh, well, I'm a biker, and I know most of the bike trails. I'm not real familiar with all the hiking trails, but is there anything we can do to help? And she, they said, well, if you want to go out and look, I said, well, you know what? We're going to go, and we'll hike one of the trails up to the up to the land bridge, and we'll hike another one back or whatever. We'll keep our eyes open. They said, hey, thanks so much. And so my daughter and I, after that bike ride, ended up hiking about three miles, going over different trails between the trailhead and the land bridge, and trying to, and we didn't see anything. We didn't see her at all, and we got back, and the police were still there. They said, had they found her? Because the helicopter had left, and they said, no, they still haven't found her, and uh, we're bringing in dogs and ATVs, and we're going to go out, and I don't know the end of that story. But the young lady was lost, or they thought she was lost, and she needed to be found. But they were also concerned that she was in danger. Somehow, some way, and if she was in danger, she didn't just need to be found, she needed to be saved from that danger. Well, today I want to talk to you, the title of my message is That They May Be Saved. That They May Be Saved. And our passage is Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 15. And we're not going to read it all right now. We're going to kind of read it as we go along. But the title of my message comes from the very, very first verse. Paul is writing and he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, we'll talk about who the them is in a minute, is that they may be saved. Paul is passionate. There's this group of people on his heart, and he's talking about a very specific group of people. But if you know Paul, you know it's not just that specific group of people. It's everybody everywhere was Paul's passion was that they might be saved. Who is the group he's talking about right here, though? He's talking about his own people. He has a passion to reach everybody. And God used him primarily to reach the Gentiles. But he's got an extra passion for his own Jewish people. 
In fact, if you go back, not right now, but you go back and read the first couple verses of chapter 9. He says, if it were possible, and it's not possible, but if it were possible, I would even give up my own salvation if it meant my people would turn to Jesus. If that would do it, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine having that kind of passion. It it stirs and encourages me. Lord, give me a greater passion for people who do not yet know Jesus. And so he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That word saved is going to be used also in chapter 10, verses 9, verse 10, verse 13. We're going to see it through our passage. But what do we mean when we say that we're saved or that someone else needs to be saved? Because that is a, I mean, the word saved is a word that's used for a lot of things. But in the spiritual realm, that's also a very kind of focused word and people that don't grow up in church or whatever, they may have heard that, but what does that really mean? You know, you need to be saved. Another word that, unless you dig into the spiritual, biblical meaning, is you need to be born again, you know, or if you want to get real theological, some of the things I preached a couple weeks ago, you need to be justified and sanctified and all that. What does that really mean when we talk about, I'm saved, or I'm praying for so-and-so because they need to be saved? The Bible talks about being saved because without Christ, people are lost. And that lostness puts them in danger because they need to be saved from the consequences of their sin. And we're not just talking about all those people out there. We're talking about us. I'm talking about me. Each and every one of us are born with a sinful nature. Even people who don't believe in God and believe the Bible is divine, you know, God's word, all that kind of stuff, realize that they've got tendencies in their lives to do things they know shouldn't be done. I mean, you don't even have to be spiritual to know that. And that's that sinful nature. And the Bible makes it clear that that sin in our lives separates us from God, not only in this life, but will do it for all eternity. And that's why we need to be saved. That's why I rejoice that I know that I am saved. And I hope you do too. And if, and if you're sitting here, you're watching online, you say, well, I'd like to believe I was saved. I think I'm saved. I guess I'll find out one day when I get there. If that's kind of your thought and your idea, you don't have a real clear vision of what it means to be saved. And hopefully today that'll be cleared up for you because you can know that you are saved. You can know that you are headed to heaven. You can know that when you get there, you will not be turned away. Although all these little cartoons and stuff about St. Peter at the curly, uh, curly, pearly gates, are they're not in the Bible, okay? Along with sitting on clouds strumming harps forever, that's not in the Bible either. Heaven's going to be a wonderful place. I can't start preaching about that. Get off topic. In fact, the last I heard, the last I understood, unless something's come up I'm not aware of, Christianity is the only religion. I could just leave it at that because that's what I believe is true. But it's the only religion where you can know that you're going to make it to heaven. All the rest of them, they don't know for sure. They're working as hard as they can to try to make sure it happens. And they'll find out once they get there. That's true of Islam. That's true of Jehovah's Witnesses. That's true of so many other different religious organizations. 
And my prayer is that, and this isn't the total focus of the message, because God wants to do something in those of us that we know we're headed to heaven. We know we're getting in. We know it's secure. But my hope is that if you are one of those people it's like, well, I'd like to believe, I think I am, I guess, that today God's Spirit would make it so clear to you that if you need to do something about it, maybe you already are saved, but you just got this wrong idea and you, and you have that confidence, yes, I am saved, I'm headed to heaven, I know that. But if for some reason, if you're depending on the wrong thing, that the Spirit will make that clear to you and that today you can make that right. I hope and I pray that that be true for you. Now, something else that's very important for us to realize, especially as we talk about missions and about our involvement in missions, is that people are not just waiting until they die to be lost. They already are lost. People without Christ are already lost. You know, that very famous passage about John 3.16, God so loved the world, sent his son, whatever, and it goes on and says, for God... Uh, for Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. A lot of people stop there. If you go on, it says, because the world's already condemned. The world is already headed to destruction. People are already headed to hell and eternity away from God. They're already lost. They need to be found. They need to be saved. That's why it's so important that those of us know Jesus take every opportunity he gives to us to share our faith and also to support other people that are sharing their faith, including missionaries, which is what we're focusing on the next week and a half, two weeks, is missions. Missions. There are just over 8 billion people in our world today. And as best as people are able to determine, those that study these things, about one-third of them are Christians. About two-thirds of them are not But of those two-thirds that are not Christians, as far as we can tell, about four billion people have still never had the privilege of even hearing the gospel. I was so pleased in the video clip we showed just a couple of moments ago about what we in the Assemblies of God are doing. And as I mentioned before the video clip, there are a lot of other great Christian denominations and organizations that are making a tremendous impact for the kingdom of God. We don't deny that. We pray for them too. But we're Assemblies of God. And it's so exciting to hear what they shared in the video about how over the last 10 years, we average seeing someone come to Christ about once every 66 seconds. And there's a new church being established on average about once every 30 minutes with over 400,000 churches established in the last 100 years because of Assemblies of God missions. And what that means is that tremendous progress is being made. And because of that, we can rejoice. But we don't need to get complacent because there's still such a great need. And that should cause us concern. And both of those things are biblical. We should rejoice at the good things God's doing in the lives that are being changed. But we should also have a burden and a passion for the people that are still in need to come to know Jesus and to even hear about Jesus. What can we do about it? That's what I want to talk about today as we get toward the end. But before we get there, I want to look at our passage and I want to talk about how a person is saved. First, we're going to talk about the wrong way to try to be saved. I know that the point is the wrong way to be saved, but it's actually the wrong way to try to be saved. Then we're going to talk about the right way to be saved or you can be saved. And then we'll talk about 
what we can do about it, all right? So first of all, we're going to talk about the wrong way to be saved. And Paul talks about it in our passage. Going back to it in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 7, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, talking about the Jewish people, but it's this, he has this burden for everybody, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, a zeal, a passion for God. But not according to knowledge. In other words, it's, it's misguided. It, they don't have the right information. For being ignorant of the ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, God's got a plan. But whether they've ignored it or they're rejecting it or they're whatever, they're following their own plan. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? We're going to stop right there for now. And if that last couple of verses like, what in the world does that mean? We'll deal with it when we get there, okay? So we're going to talk about the wrong way to be saved. And can I tell you, there's a lot of wrong ways to be saved, to try to be saved. And basically, all of them fall under the category of choosing to do it my own way rather than God's way. You know, being saved is all about getting back in right, or getting into right relationship with God, and God has a provided a way for that to happen. And anytime, anywhere, somebody says, I don't want to do it God's way, I want to do it my way. We're still in our sin. And it's the wrong way to be saved. It's the wrong way to try to be saved. A couple of those ways are either mentioned or insinuated in this passage, and the first one is having zeal. Zeal or passion won't save you. Paul talks about the passion and the zeal of the Jews to serve God, to try to live according to his law. They were very zealous. And Paul can speak from experience. If you know the story of Paul, you know this. If you don't, Paul was a very, very zealous Jew. And he grew up in that tradition. In Philippians, he talks about he did everything he could to do everything right according to God's law. He was passionate about it. He was blameless. He did a great job. And he was not only passionate about trying to please God by keeping his law, but also defending God and defending his honor and defending against anything that would come against God's plan and purpose. And in his mind, Jesus Christ was a person who did that. He was blinded by the enemy of the world, as he later talks about in one of his letters, to the fact that Jesus Christ was God's plan, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the the Jewish deliverer, the Jewish savior. And not only that, but he actually is God come to earth in the flesh. But because he was blinded to that, Paul zealously persecuted Christians, voted against them when they were tried, was there when the first martyr that's recorded in Scripture, Stephen, was put to death because of his faith. He would travel out of the country to other places to find Christians, arrest them, and bring them back to Jerusalem to be tried and condemned. 
And on one of those trips, his spiritual blindness turned into physical blindness because Jesus struck him blind and spoke to him. And he realized Jesus was the Messiah. He'd been wrong all along. And he gave his heart to Jesus and he became a great missionary evangelist. Passionately reaching out to the world, trying first to reach his own people and then reaching out to the Gentiles, to the people that were not Jewish people. So Paul knows all about this zeal. He says the Jewish people are zealous, but they only have part of God's truth. They're blind to God's ultimate plan. Yes, God gave the law to kind of cement the relationship between him and his people. He says, if you're going to serve me, this is how you should live. And this is the best way to live in this world. But even going all the way back before the law to Abraham, righteousness before God was not just about keeping the law. It was by faith, trusting in God. Even those who were under the law, they were to keep the law because that was God's standard for them. But still, to have right relationship with God, it wasn't just about keeping the law. It was having faith in God to take care of them. And that by living for him, they were fine. So the Jews were very zealous. Very zealous. But you know what? Zeal cannot make up for going the wrong way. Have any of you gotten lost And you're able to stop being lost because you sped up and went faster. Now, have any of you tried that? (laughs) We'd want to raise our hands, right? I mean, I have to admit, there have been times I didn't know exactly where I was at. And I didn't think that speeding up would help me get back on the right path. But I figured I'd find the right path quicker. But you know what? Speeding up doesn't... Get you off the wrong path unless you just happen to be going the right way. And in the same way, zeal cannot save us. Passion cannot save us. We can be very passionate even about God and about church and about Bible and prayer reading and all that kind of stuff. And those are wonderful things. In fact, I would tell you that each and every one of us should have a passion inside. In fact, Jesus said, what's the greatest, you know, they asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We should be passionate about our love for God. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. We should be passionate about our love for other people, but that will not save us. Zeal or passion won't save you. You know, people in other religions are very zealous. Some I don't want to try to put a percentage, but I don't know. Some Muslims are very zealous. So zealous, they're willing to kill themselves for the cause. And we're not going to dig deeply into it. I'm just saying they're zealous. There are other people that are very zealous. We took a group of people that went out yesterday to pass out uh, gospel literature and invitations to the church and some things in the community. And as we were doing that, we saw another religious group that was out doing that. I won't name them. They're cult. And often people say, well, why are Christians not more active in doing that like that particular religious cult? And one of the reasons is because they're very zealous to do it because they don't know if they're going to get to heaven. And that's one of the ways they can earn their way there. Now, I'm not saying there aren't any of those people that care about others. I'm sure there are. But that's part of the whole process and why you see different groups going out, even those that are not Christian. Because it's one of the ways they can earn their way to heaven is by being zealous and doing these good works. Zeal won't save you. The second one is this. Sincerity won't save you. The Jews sincerely believed 
that their way was God's way. But as I explained, it wasn't. It wasn't. And there's this idea in our culture, especially in light of the fact that we're supposed to be tolerant of everybody, and, and we should love everybody, and to the degree that it's loving, we need to tolerate other people and their ideas and stuff. You know, it's like, you know what? I, I, I want to love you, and I'll be tolerant of the fact that you're wrong. <laughs> Not that you're going to tell them that, maybe, but, you know, we don't need to aggressively try to change people's minds in a negative, uh, critical I don't want to use the wrong word here, but in a, in a hurtful way, put it that way. A hurtful way is a better way to do it. But sincerity won't save you. There's this idea in our culture, again, in light of the fact we're supposed to be tolerant, that any way will get you there. Okay? That, you know, as long as you're following a path to the best of your ability, it will get you there. As long as you're sincerely trying to reach out to God whoever he might be and whatever he might be in this force. As long as you're sincere, it'll get you there. You know, it's interesting that religion is the only area that I can think of, and if there are others, there are very, very few, where people believe that sincerity really makes a difference like that. Let me give you a couple examples. If you sincerely believe taking poison, not knowing it's poison, will heal you, if you take that poison, is it going to heal you? No. No. But you're sincere. If you sincerely believe that if you get on I-75 going south, now for those of you that are directionally challenged, this illustration won't mean much to you. But if you sincerely believe that getting on I-75 going south and keep on going that way that you're going to get to Tennessee, will you? No, I mean, you could say, well, you could circle the whole globe, eventually get there, but the I-75 isn't that long. If you sincerely believe that if you jump off of a cliff, that you will float up into the air. Will you? No. Think of any other area. Where other, what other area? And if you think of one, tell me, because I'd love to have it for a future illustration. Other areas in life where sincerity really makes a difference. Other than supposedly in religion. Sincerity won't save you. The third one is this. Good works won't save you. Doing the right thing won't save you. Now, doing the right thing is the way we should live. Doing the right thing becomes a responsibility, those of us who know Jesus, to live out our lives. As we're going to see a little bit later, if we claim to know Jesus, but we're not trying to do the right thing, we may not be saved like we think we are. It is a result. It should be what happens after. But you can't be saved just by doing the right things. And that's what... Um, the Jews were all caught up in is keeping God's law and doing it just right. And their hearts and their attitudes and everything were all wrong. They weren't really trusting God, they were trusting themselves. And that's a trap we all can fall into. You know, the Bible says there's only one way we can be saved by our works. And that's if we are perfect. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you think you're perfect. The rest of us would look down on you. And not just perfect from this point on, but have always been perfect. And have not been born with a sinful nature. Nobody, that's true of nobody. Even if we do the very best we can from this point on, we've already sinned enough to be condemned for our sins. Good works won't save you. That's what's behind those couple of verses where Paul says, um, uh, verses, uh, let me see where it is here, uh, There we go, verses 6 and 7, where he says, but the righteousness based on faith 
It says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Um, basically, he's quoting and applying it to Jesus from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 16. But basically, in Deuteronomy, God is speaking through Moses, and he's just told them how God wants them to live, and he's saying, listen, it's right here in front of you. You don't have to go across the sea to find out what God wants you to do. You don't have to go to hell to find out what God wants you to do. You don't, it's right here in front of you. Just do the right thing. So Paul's quoting from that, but he's applying it to Jesus. And what he's saying is, it's, it's relatively simple. It's right here in front of you. The solution is Jesus. It's not like you have to go up into heaven to pull Jesus down. He already came. It's not like you have to go down into the abyss, whatever he means exactly, and pull Jesus up. He already died and rose from the grave. He's already done the hard stuff. It's right here in front of you. Good works don't save you. As I mentioned before, we see people of all kinds of other religions doing all these good works. Trying to hopefully guarantee them a place in heaven or their version of heaven. People who crawl on their hands and knees and pray in unusual situations. People who will do things to their body, thinking that extra suffering will help, especially this time of the year as we get closer to Easter. You see other cultures in the world primarily where people will crucify themselves, maybe not to death, but they'll have someone nail them to a cross that somehow that is going to enhance their spiritual spirituality. And their, but that kind of stuff will not save you. There's other, other things, but again, they all come down to basically, I want to do it my way, not God's way. God's already provided the way. Are there people trying to be saved the wrong way today? Yes. Are there people in churches? Because that's where we are. Trying to be saved the wrong way? Yes. Let me read a couple of comments, thoughts, attitudes, and see if any of these ring true, hopefully of your past, not now, but as long as I show enthusiasm for the Lord, I can also do whatever I want. Because I'm good. As long as my good outweighs the bad. Any belief will do as long as I'm sincere. I might not agree with everything the Bible says, but I'm really sincere about, you know, searching for God and, you know, whatever, at least with the part that I believe. Those are very prevalent attitudes and thoughts. But if someone's basing their salvation on that, it's not going to work. That won't save you. Why do people not want to accept God's way? We could do a whole study on that, but I think it basically comes down to a couple of things. We don't like the idea of not being able to do it by myself. We don't like being dependent on somebody else. We, we don't like the idea of owing someone else. If I owe God my life, you know, then I'm obligated to give it to him, not just in the life to come, but now. We don't like the idea of having to submit to God, to give him control, to allow him to have input and not just like, hey, here's a suggestion, but to tell us what to do. And so people decide, I'm going to do it my own way. So what is the right way to be saved? Paul talks about that. The right way to be saved. Going back to verse 4, just to mention this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Just real quickly, what that's saying is that Christ came to fulfill the law. The law was meant to lead us to the point we recognize we need a Savior. We can't be saved based on our good works. We need God to do something. And Christ is the one that came and took care of it for us. And that if we choose to believe in him, and we'll talk about what that means in just a moment, 
that will take care of us. But let's jump down now to verses 8 to 13. Right at that part where Paul says you don't have to ascend it to heaven to bring Christ down, descend it to the abyss to bring him up. Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Again, referring back to the Deuteronomy where Moses said, listen, you don't need to go search it. God's already told you what you need to do. It's right here in front of you. Do it. Now, Paul's applying it to Christ. He says, Christ is right here. Christ has taken care of it. It's right in front of you what you need to do. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul says the way to salvation is right in front of your face. And it's not something you need to go searching for. It's not something you need to try harder for. You just need to accept it. What does that mean? We need to trust in the righteousness that God provides through Jesus Christ. How How do we do that? What does that mean? There's two important phrases that Paul gives us, and you've very probably heard these before, found in verses 9 and 10. First of all, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, I want you to understand here, this does not mean that you just say, Jesus is Lord, I'm good to go. To confess means to confess because you believe it. And if you believe something, you will base your life on it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it's not just saying the words, it's believing them to be true and acting on them. And if that is true, if you really believe that Jesus is Lord and you live that out, it means you will surrender to the Lordship of Christ. It's not like, yeah, Jesus is Lord, but he's not mine. That may be true right now anyway, but if that's the case, you're not saved. How can you say Jesus is Lord? He is the ultimate supreme being. He's God. He has all authority, all power. And because of that, I'm accountable to him, but I'm not going to do it. See, that's what got us in the trouble to begin with. That's what sin's all about. When we truly confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, it means we've surrendered to his lordship. It means we say, Jesus is my master. He's my ruler. He's the one who controls my life. Now, we may not be doing that perfect, but that's our heart. That's our desire. That's the way we live. God, you saved me. Jesus is Lord. I'm going to live for him. I want to do what he wants me to do. Now, please understand, I'm not trying to slip back into something I said you can't do, that somehow you're saved because now that Jesus is Lord, you've got to do everything he says, so you're actually working toward it. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm saying is that Jesus has become your Lord because you've surrendered to him and you're trusting in him for salvation. But if that is truly true, really true, it'll change your life. And there's teachings all through God's word from Jesus through John and Paul that if you have truly put your trust in Jesus and you have been saved, you've been born again, it makes a difference in your life. 
And John goes so far as to say, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 John, that if you claim to be a believer and it's not changed your life, I think you're deceived. I think you're deceived. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, does Jesus control your life? It's really interesting, and there's nothing wrong with this per se, so please don't think I'm being critical. But a lot of times you hear people preaching, I've probably done this too, get to the end of a message and encourage people to surrender or invite people to be their say, uh, invite, uh, I'm sorry, encourage or invite people to surrender to Jesus and invite him to be their savior. Now we all need Jesus to be our savior. But the point I want to try to make is that that's not the focus of the New Testament. You know, there is no place in the New Testament. Now, if I'm wrong, I've looked, but if I'm wrong, I I, I admit to possibly being wrong. I'm, I'm still human. I'm still fallible. But I don't believe there's any single place in the Bible where it says that you need to invite Jesus to be your Savior. Now, we need him to be our Savior. He is our Savior. The Bible talks about him being our Savior. But what the Bible talks about is making him Lord. In fact, it's really interesting. Jesus is referred to Savior about 16 times in the whole New Testament, but he is referred to as Lord 450 times because that's the focus. That's the focus. The second part of what we're talking about here is where it says, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, when we think of the heart... In our cultural understanding, that's the place of our feelings. You know, I feel this way and all that kind of stuff. But in their society, it was much, much more than that. It was, the heart was the the center of your feelings, but it was also the center of your will and the center of your commitment and the center of your intellect. In other words, basically the core of who you are. So anytime the Bible talks about believing something with your heart or committing something from your heart, it wasn't just being emotionally involved. It means I'm committed. And I'm committed whether I feel it or not. I've made a rational decision based on what I understand and by faith that I am committed. So when it says believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, It basically means that we're putting, I'm making a commitment to have a deep inward trust in Jesus Christ from the core of my being. Which goes right along with the whole idea that he's Lord. So I'm going to submit to him as Lord. Now now why does it say that God raised him from the dead rather than that he died on the cross for our sins? I mean, didn't he die on the cross for our sins? Sure he did. Wasn't his death on the cross what paid for our sins? Yes, it did. But the resurrection is supremely important, as we talk about, especially at Easter time. Without the resurrection, the cross would mean nothing. Because Jesus said over and over and over again, and all of his teachings and all the things he said he came to do, and this, that, and the other, he says, I will be betrayed. I will be, you know, to paraphrase, I'll be unjustly tried by the religious leaders. I'll be turned over to the Romans. I will be crucified, but I will rise again. If all those things had happened except the resurrection, what would that mean? It would mean that Jesus was deluded or one who likes to delude other people. He was mistaken. 
He wasn't who he said he was, and he didn't do what he said he came to do. He was just another dead man. It was the resurrection that was the proof that his death on the cross could pay the price for sins. So to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it means to trust in what Christ did for you, not in what you do for yourself. So very simply, those of you that have been around any length of time, you've heard this before, but I say it all the time because people need to hear it, and I want to get it in your head so much that you can't help but think it, and it's available to you to share with other people. But the basic story is this, is that we are all sinners. Romans is all about that. There's no one righteous. In the beginning of Romans, he talks about how the Gentiles, they're sinners. How the Jews, even though they think they got it right, they're sinners. We're all sinners. There's no one who does right. And he says the wages of sin is death, which is separation from God spiritually in this life, but eternally. But it goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And basically what that means is I'm going to stop trying to do it on my own. I'm going to stop trying to earn my salvation. I'm going to stop thinking I'm going to get there because I'm sincere. I'm going to stop thinking I can do a whole bunch of works. I'm going to stop thinking, well, as long as I say the right words and I go to church, I'm good. But I'm going to surrender to Christ as Lord. And I'm going to put my trust in the fact that he died on the cross because that's what it was all about. Jesus, God himself, came to earth, lived the perfect life that we cannot live, died a death he did not deserve. So his death could pay the price for our sins. So that's what it's all about. We come to him and say, God, I've tried to be good or I haven't tried to be good. I've been really nasty maybe. I don't know. But God, I need a Savior. And I need the Lord. I need to surrender my life to you. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins. Not because I'm trying hard. Not because I'm sincere. Because I'm a sinner. And Jesus died to pay the price for my sins. Please forgive me based on what he did. And the Bible says if that is the case, he will forgive us. But if we really mean that, that's what saves us. It's not doing good works. But if we really mean it, it'll make a difference in our lives. I like to put it this way. If a person has had their horrific sins, you say, my sins aren't horrific. Compared to somebody else, maybe our sins are horrific. Why would you go back to them if that's what caused the problem, if that's what caused the division, if that's what caused the wall, the barrier, the chasm between us and God? If that's what caused Jesus to have to die, why would we go back to our sins deliberately and intentionally, consistently and habitually? Yes, we still struggle with it. And thank God that as we struggle with sin, even if we give in to temptation and we fail and we fall, if we come to God, he will forgive us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John says that in 1 John 1, 9. John also says that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, in other words, we've surrendered our lives to Christ and we're trying to live for him, if we mess up, his blood covers over all of our sins. That's because we've been saved. Because we've been saved. So there's a lot of wrong ways to be saved. Many people are going that way. Jesus calls that a broad way. Unfortunately, because of human nature, there'll be more people that miss it than get it. But there is a right way that everyone needs. And it's by trusting in Jesus Christ. But as we think about how does this relate to 
our lives if we already know Jesus now and to missions. We've been talking about missions. There's a process. What will it take that they may be saved? And we're going to wrap this up in this third point really quickly. But what will it take that they may be saved? What will it take that people around you get saved? What will it take that people over in Zambia, Africa will get saved? What will it take for people over in China to get saved? What will it take for people in South America, wherever you want to say, what would it take for your neighbor next door to be saved? Paul tells us in verses 13 to 15, we wrap it up with this. I ended the last reading with 13. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whereas anyone who comes to him, calls on him, the name being who Jesus is, I, I believe what's true about you, I'm putting my trust, all that kind of stuff. But he goes on to verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, that's an accurate translation, but I just want to pause here to say that that word literally means to proclaim or to announce. Okay? It also refers to what I'm doing right now, standing up here and preaching to you, but sometimes people hear and say, well, I'm not a preacher. How many of you ever shared good news with somebody? That's proclaiming. That's this word here, okay? That's sharing with somebody else, all right? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, real quickly, how many of you ever wondered, what in the world does that mean? How can people's feet be beautiful? Paul's quoting from, I believe it's Isaiah. I should have looked that up. And Isaiah is talking about God's people being in captivity. But God's going to set them free. And he's going to send someone to travel from one part of the world to the other to tell them that they have been set free. Can you imagine being in a dirty, nasty prison cell in some third world country and someone shows up who's walked a hundred miles just to tell you that um, you're going to be set free? What? This is just a poetic way of saying they were willing to do that. They were willing to walk that far to let me know oh, how beautiful are their feet. <laughs> I mean, they may be cut and bleeding and broken and scabbed, but they're beautiful because that's what brought the message to me. And that's what Paul's quoting from Isaiah and what he's trying to get across is that those who proclaim the message and send the message, maybe even at great cost, how beautiful are their feet. So what will it take that they may be saved? Really quickly. Number one, or first bullet point, calling on the name of the Lord brings salvation. That's what he says here. What does that mean? It means to put our trust in Christ. Everything I've already talked about, I'm not going to repeat it. And Jesus is the only name. Jesus is the only way. That's not politically correct, but it is the truth according to the Bible. Now, people can say the Bible's not true. You know what? Until they're willing to accept that, there's not much you can do except pray for them. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Acts 4, 12, Peter said, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But before the calling is the believing. A person is not going to call out to God unless they believe the message. I just alluded to that. If they don't believe the Bible, they don't think it's true, they don't think any of this is true, they're not going to call out to God. So before that is the believing. Verse 14. And how are they to believe? I'm sorry, and how would they call unless they believe? Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's what it says in Acts chapter 10, verse 43. 
What does that believe? What does that believe? That believe is all the things I already talked. It's putting that trust, putting that faith in him. It's not just saying, oh, I believe Jesus is the son of God. James tells us that demons believe that and they're not saved. It means we believe it with our head, but we believe it with our heart and therefore we put our trust in it. I've used this illustration many times because I got it from somebody else. That if I had a chair, a stool up here, and I'd say, hey, I believe this chair will support my weight. How am I going to know if it really supports my weight? Is if I sit in it. So if you say, well, I believe Jesus can save, but they've never put their trust in it. In him, in that, in that statement, that truth. So before the calling is the believing, but before the believing is the hearing. How can somebody believe unless they hear the message? Unless they have it explained. That message of salvation must be heard before it can be believed. And before it is heard, there must be someone proclaiming it. Before the hearing is proclaiming. You know, the way God does things, there's always a messenger. God doesn't just announce it from the heavens. He sends a messenger. God planned it that way. The message is communicated by someone who believes it and has had their lives changed by it. And who is this preacher as this this is properly translated, but as is, who is this proclaimer? It's not just pastors. And it's not just missionaries that God leads to go overseas and do this. It's each and every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ. As we witness to God's impact in our lives through our words, but also through our lifestyle, that salvation can come through faith in Christ. And before the proclaiming is the sending. I said, God did the hard work. Now God sends people to specific places, to specific people, to specific circumstances. As we're entering our missions convention, this is kind of the pre-missions convention. Got it started early. We're talking about missionaries that God has spoken very specifically to about. I want you to leave where you are now to go to a totally different place. Maybe a different community, maybe a different state, maybe a different country, maybe to the other side of the world because God's going to send them. But it's not just those missionaries. It's not just those missionaries because in all reality, as we said many times, we are called to be missionaries wherever God sends us. In our family, in our extended family, in our neighborhood, where we work, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, you don't have that job just to earn a living. God puts you there to make a difference in your world. Where we go to school, we're all called to be missionaries. I'm looking forward to two weeks from today when I get to preach the theme, sent all peoples everywhere, because it wasn't just that Jesus sent his disciples, and it isn't just that God sends missionaries all over the world, but he's sending us. Talk about that in two weeks. But it all goes back to a passage that maybe you're familiar with, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, where Jesus tells his disciples before he ascends into heaven, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now the sad thing is not everybody who hears the message responds positively. Paul's going to go on in Romans to talk about that exactly. He says, you know, the Jews got the message, they basically rejected it. But God's not done with them. God never gives up on anybody. They've got until they die to have an opportunity to come to know him. 
But what do we do? So many people, I think so many times we get discouraged, we don't share because so many people reject it. Do we just give up? No. What do we do? What do we do? Let me just tell you real quick. Pray. Pray. Pray for our missionaries. Pray for the ministries of our church. Pray for yourself that God will give you an open door and give you the boldness and whatever it takes to take that step of faith to share the gospel yourself. God wants to use you. Pray that God will give you a greater burden and passion. I, I already said at the beginning, I'm praying this myself. You know, when Paul said, my heart's desire and prayers that they may be saved. God, give me a greater passion for that. And can I tell you that as we go into this missions convention, you've got two great opportunities for prayer. This Saturday morning at the prayer breakfast and the following Wednesday night as we pray for the fields of the world. I encourage you to be there. But do it on your own. Starting next week, we'll have lists of all the missionaries and missions projects that we support out in the lobby. They'll be available and we try to keep them available all year long, but we've kind of let down on that. So you can take those lists and pray for those missionaries. I try to pray for one every day. You pray for one, go to the next one the next day, and then keep working my way through. Second thing is give. Give to missions. Give to outreach. Give generously and regularly. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be taking up faith promises. I challenge you to make missions an important part of your budget. It's not all about just giving to our church or through our church. It's how does God want me to see the kingdom advanced in the area of missions, at least financially? So give. And the third one is go. Be a witness. Be a missionary. Get involved in opportunities here to reach other people and help disciple them. Get involved in ministry. I wrap it up with this verse, 2 Peter 3.9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, talking about Jesus coming back, as some account slowness, but He's patient towards you, not wanting anyone to perish, but that all should reach repentance. God doesn't want anybody to perish. Do we? God is not willing that any should perish. Am I willing? Or will I step up and do what God wants me to do? Let's all stand together. I'm going to invite our elders and our prayer team members to come to the front. We're going to be available to pray for you or with you for anything in your life or if you want to come and ask for prayer for somebody else you care about, join with you. But before we do that, I just want to ask, are you here today or are you watching online or maybe even watching this a year from now or listening to it? As I said at the very beginning, God has dealt with your heart Say, you know what? I need to be saved. Maybe you thought you were, you hoped you were because you've been trying to be good and your good outweighs your bad, you're sincere, whatever, and you realize that doesn't do it. I've got to put my trust in Jesus and begin to live for him. And if that's you and you'd say today, you know what? I want to surrender my life to Christ. I want him to be the Lord of my life. I want to ask him to forgive me of my sins based on what he's done, not on what I can do. Would you just slip your hand up? You say, everybody's watching. Yeah, we've all done this. Yeah. Yeah. Those of you on the prayer team, you see some hands. Why don't you go? Just pray with them. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to pray a prayer for those that may be watching or listening. That if you pray it from your heart, you can't do it because I'm praying it for you because you've got to pray it for yourself. That Jesus will make a difference in your life. And I encourage you to pray something like this. Let's pray. Father God, I come to you right now. And I recognize that I am a sinner. 
And I thank you that you did something about it by sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you came. And I ask that you forgive me of my sins because of what Jesus did on the cross. And today, I want to surrender my life to you. Thank you that you've offered forgiveness. Thank you that you accept me because of what Jesus has done. And I surrender my life to you. Help me to live for you now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Worship team is going to sing a song. We're here to pray. If you would like prayer for anything, come. We'll pray with you. And in just a couple of moments, we'll conclude the service. that a prayer today. Father, we just come to you at the end of the service. And God, I say, I surrender. Father, I pray that you'd help me to be fully surrendered to you. I pray that you'd help us as a people to be fully surrendered to you. Living our lives, Lord God, to bring glory and honor to you. And Lord, you know that's not always easy. We have areas we struggle with, each and every one of us. We pray you'd help us. Lord, we need your help. We can't do it on our own. Give us strength in our areas of weakness, Lord God. Help us with those specific areas where we are tempted. And God, when we fail, when we fall, I pray for myself. I hope others will join. Lord, just convict my heart to get that right before you as quickly as possible. And give me the strength to get back up and go forward. But Father, I not only surrender my life afresh and new to you, I want to surrender my willingness to be used by you. God, use me in this church as the pastor. Use me in my neighborhood, Lord, use me in the other places I go. And I pray that each of us would have that same desire to be used by you in our world. Stir within us a greater passion and desire to see people saved. That we be willing to commit ourselves not just to live life and enjoy it. We thank you for the enjoyable things in life. But to make a difference in our world. That they may be saved. That they, the days around us may be saved. And as we enter the next two weeks and we're talking about missions, deal with our hearts about that too. About how you want us to be involved in missions. And Father, as we leave today to go out into our mission field, help us, Lord God, to be a witness for you. We give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. Greet and love on the other missionaries in the room as you go out today. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org. 